welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Should you do vaccine comparison shopping? Dr. Jason Kinderchuk weighs in. And how is the pandemic affecting your mental health? Psychiatrist Dr. Koresh Edelotti provides peace of mind. And did you know that Canada has some of the highest rates of multiple sclerosis in the world and women are disproportionately affected? That's the bad news. The good news is on the podcast. And what about sex after kids? Does it exist? It's all here. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Bada bing. <laughs> and now, Maureen's Health Headline. You've I, heard his voice before? I We've, thought I clicked play, but then it turned out I didn't actually. That's okay. I've, I've always wanted to let out that bada bing so I many times. I blame the snap peas. <laughs> I blame the M&Ms. Anyway, it's okay. We are not perfect, Andrew, are we? I pride myself on being imperfect. Same, same, absolutely. My parents don't like that. I I think it's a good thing. Neither does my boss. Perfectionism is tough. People who live with that, it's very difficult. Perfection isn't real. No, it isn't. You cannot be perfect in every single arena of your life. Maybe in a little bit here or there, you might fold clothes perfectly or you might be a great runner, but you know what? Not every area. Can you be perfect? But this guy is pretty close to perfect, especially in a pandemic. He is assistant professor, Canada research chair at the University of Manitoba, contributor at Forbes, and he also studies emerging viruses, and he is our all things COVID expert. He is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Good evening, Maureen. A little pressure to be perfect here around the <laughs> pandemic anyway. <laughs> uh, listen, I'm, I'm just trying to get a toddler to go to bed before 10 o'clock at night. So I can do know, that. Listen, that that's, you know, big, big goals right now. <laughs> I can help with that. You deal with the pandemic, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, nice to have you on the program tonight. I do want to say for those of you listening out there, if you want to ask Dr. Kinderchuk any questions about COVID-19, feel free. The number to call is one 399 I do have a question for you, which is something yeah. we didn't get to last week, and that is around, given the different efficacies of the uh, virus uh, of the vaccines that are available between Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca, which are in the 90s for the first two I mentioned, and in the 60s, 63, I believe, percent for the AstraZeneca, should people be doing comparison vaccine shopping? Uh, you know what? It's so difficult to do, right? And, and the reason I say that is when we look across these different vaccines, the problem that we run into is that the, the variables between trials uh, obviously are very different. And so if you just think alone about the differences in transmission rate from month to month during the pandemic, um, that has massive influences on, on what the ultimate efficacy looks like. We've seen different circulating strains. We've seen you know people uh, that have been tested in different regions. All of this has played into... Uh, what the ultimate efficacies end up being. So we have kind of the clinical data that gives us an indication of how effective these vaccines were. But now we're getting a sense of what the real world data looks like. Um, And that's where, you know, we started to see how discordant this relationship can actually be, especially when we look at things like the AstraZeneca vaccine versus Pfizer from uh, the, the latest Public Health Scotland data, where they, you know, after the first dose, those two vaccines look, you know, pretty much, you know, uh, kind of mirroring is of one another in regards to decreased hospitalizations um, and across uh, all age groups. And, and I think that's where, you know, uh, we really need to do, I think, a better job in, in discussing this with the public of saying this is what FC actually means and what it doesn't mean. And, and I think that's really important for us to get across. It, it, it makes it very difficult. And, you know, I've said, you know, myself and w- within my own circles that at this point, if any of the vaccines were offered to me, I would jump at the chance. For, for people that are in higher age groups, maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe you want to see Pfizer or Moderna get there because you don't want to see them have any symptoms of disease. But for somebody like myself, listen, if I can take severe COVID down to being like a cold, that's, that's good enough for me. Reserve the, you know, the, the vaccines that completely remove all symptoms for, for people that uh, that are in those very high-risk groups. And I think that's something that we forgot during the pandemic, which was the reason for mask wearing and physical distancing and hand hygiene and face shields and gowns and gloves, whatever. Um, it was actually to reduce the impact of the resources of, of hospitals because, you know, the hospitals were going to be overburdened. And also some people, especially in the older age groups, but certainly not 
limited to that, um, were at risk of dying. And many people did die as a result of COVID-19. But, but somehow, um, I, I'm curious, or I sometimes feel like, are we being, is it patronizing to say it's 62% effective against COVID-19, but a hundred percent effective against, uh, deaths and hospitalizations. Uh, you know, some people don't want to get COVID at all. Uh, we, we've heard the stories of the long haulers. We know people who have comorbidities, that people who are, um, the, the highest death rate is, is people in countries um, where obesity is very high. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, is it about, is it exclusively about hospitalizations and deaths or is it about um, contracting the uh, COVID-19 and still having a risk? Sure. And, and I think what, you know, what also compounds all of this is that when we start looking at, at vaccine equity across the countries, um, one of the things that, that I certainly fear that, that we put ourselves into, and certainly even in underserved communities in Canada, is that we now have started to you know, kind of make it seem as if there is a better vaccine for people that are at the front of the line and a worse vaccine for people maybe that are not able to be at the front of the line or who are not able to live in, in sprawling urban centers and, and get, um, you know, get to, to vaccine distribution uh, very readily. Same thing with low and middle income countries. And, and that puts us into a bad position because we don't want to make people more hesitant or, or more concerned about whether they're getting a lesser vaccine. And I think what you're starting to see is certainly people within, um, you know, within my field and other fields that are trying now very desperately to get the message out to say to people, all the vaccines are, are amazing. They, 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 we could never have imagined that we would be in this position that we are today. And all these vaccines across the board are, are, are simply miracles. This is true. I have Ron on the line. Oh, I do not have Ron on the line. Sorry. <laughs> I have a question for you. Um, I have somebody who actually um, emailed me and said that her twin sister is dying in another country from terminal cancer. And she would love to go and visit her, but she's 75 years old. And she would love to be able to get the vaccine before she left Canada, even though it wouldn't be effective uh, going there in the next few days on the way back on her return trip, she would have immunity. Um, I'm sure there are so many stories like this. And she was wondering if extra doses, if I might know of any extra doses, that that might be available to her. Um, you know, this is so challenging to get this vaccine into the arms of people and the right people. Oh, it is. Right. And, and, and I think the, the, the difficulty that we're in is that, you know, I, I kind of keep talking about the fact that, listen, look how, you know, how much progress we've made in 14 months. Um, but there are people that literally are looking at this on a day-by-day situation who are in this position and, and saying, I, I need my turn now. Um, it, it is a, a situation of, of desperation. And the unfortunate reality is we don't have a lot of control over this. The, you know, whether or not we get somebody immunized and, and um, you know, hope for the best by, you know, by sending them on a trip and, and assuming that okay, well, their immunity will kick in after seven to 10 days. So we're in that frame and they should get good protection by that point. There's a lot of risk involved in, in all of this. And, and I think that's going to be one of the, uh, I think, long-term effects from the pandemic is looking back at, at these situations where we simply did not have any control and any ability to maneuver around. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. He studies all things viruses and he helps us each week with coronavirus. Uh, Dr. Kinderchuk, thanks for staying on the line. I have Ron on the line from Burnaby, British Columbia as well. Good evening, Ron. Hey, Maureen. Hey, Dr. K. Um, hey, Ron. Uh, I know uh, Andrew said uh, you answered this last week, but uh, I just want a definitive yes or no answer. Does Bonnie's numbers every week of the people that are now in health uh, include people like me, the long haulers? That would be Dr. Bonnie Henry that you're referring to, the provincial health That's officer correct. in British yes. Columbia. Uh, yeah, uh, people yeah. that are recovered. Do we remember the long haulers? Well, I can only speak for Manitoba because I know that data, and it would not include those that uh, that that have already been released from uh, from the hospital. So when they look at recoveries, um, it's going to be people that that are post hospitalization, but not necessarily those that uh, that that have recovered fully from from yes long term. Yes or no? Patients. 
I, I can't tell you. I'm not. I I don't do anything with public health in BC. Oh, okay. You know what, Ron? Let me look into it. Email me at nursetalkathotmail.com. I'll get you that uh, answer. I do have a text message. Um, and uh, the question, Maureen, is what about residents of halfway houses? Where do those um, on the congregate living spectrum uh, fit? And when can we expect our vaccines? Oh, it's a tough one. <laughs> Another great question, right? And it's going to depend from region to region. So Ontario... Right. Had, had recently released their uh, their vaccination um, plan and rollout. And I, I believe that they at least had, you know, some indications for, for different congregate settings when uh, when they would uh, receive their vaccines. Manitoba, I think, was a little bit different. Uh, we didn't get a lot of clarity on that. I think it's it really going to you know, be dependent on uh, on the province and, uh, and, and, again, reach out to, uh, to the provincial health authority to, to find out if they have any clarity yet. And I think BC is going to announce theirs uh, tomorrow. We have Mary on the line from Winnipeg. Hello, Mary. Thanks for taking the call. I wanted to ask, firstly, if you're senior and you get both Pfizer vaccines, um, can you still die of COVID? Secondly, the University of Saskatchewan vaccination department had said um, that the provinces that are extending the amount of time between first and second doses are using theoretical models and that real live data from patients in Scotland shows it's a poor policy and it's counterproductive to the end to the ends of it. And, and might I add that Dr. Anthony Fauci says it's important to have a timely second dose. What does Dr. Kinderchuk say? Yeah, you know, I actually disagree with with some of that. Um, first of all, so there, there was a, an Oxford vaccine study that just came out that showed uh, that if they could extend the dosing between the first and second dose out to 12 weeks or more, they actually see an increase in efficacy uh, as compared to being down to, say, six weeks uh, between the dosing. Um, the Pfizer data, we certainly have seen um, some indication. That, that extended um, extended duration between the first and second dose uh, did not necessarily lead to poor results. Um, but there is certainly a, a, an amount of hypothetical in here. But I, I would also look at, at people like Alison McGear, or Dr. Alison McGear, um, you know, who talked about the historical relevance of what we know about immunization. And the historical data we have from immunization suggests that we can actually look at increasing uh, you know, periods between first and second dose while they're getting good retention of, of immune response. But in this case, we also know that the vaccines are starting to show that they uh, potentially decrease transmission. So if we're able to get more people vaccinated up front, not only do we get more people protected, but we also probably are going to have a greater influence on decreased transmission in our communities, which ultimately is going to help us uh, get, get people protected uh, faster. Can the senior die if they've had two Pfizer doses if they get COVID? Thanks, Mary. The, the I didn't phase, want to forget that. Yeah, the, the phase three trials showed that there were no fatalities uh, across any of the age groups that received both doses of, of their Pfizer vaccine or, or Moderna or AstraZeneca and J&J for that matter. Thanks very much. Have a great night. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary. Anyway, we still have a long way to go, Dr. Kinderchuk, on this, and we still have lots to learn. And yeah. also to just see how this vaccination rollout um, will, will play out. I have to say I, I was contacted and asked to share, um, you know, with my network, um, you know, the, the recruitment for nurses to deliver vaccines across Canada. So if you are a nurse that would like to help out with this campaign, feel free to email me and I'll send your name off to the uh, powers that be. Dr. Kindertruck, thank you so much for joining the program again. I appreciate it. Always appreciate being on, Maureen. As always. And I hope that uh, your little guy, your little toddler is in bed <laughs> by <laughs> <hope> now. So <laughs> Maybe the show put him to sleep. Anyway. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. Mental health is critical and we have realized this in a pandemic. In fact, it took a pandemic to realize just how important mental health is. And so many people who may never have experienced mental health issues in the past are experiencing uh, those now. Imagine what it's like for people who have 
a diagnosis from schizoaffective disorder to bipolar disorder to depression, anxiety, and what we're going to be talking about tonight, borderline personality disorder. Experienced and visionary specialist, he is a leader in the mental health care industry. He is a skilled psychiatrist specializing in neurofeedback, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, functional medicine, neuromodulation, preventative medicine, and psychotherapy. He's also medical director and CEO at LUMind Centers for Brain Excellence. He is Dr. Koresh Adelati, and he joins me on the line from North Vancouver. Good evening, Dr. Koresh. Dr. Adelati, sorry. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm so used to calling you Koresh. Anyway, Dr. Adelati, <laughs> you can call me Nurse McGrath if you'd like. <laughs> How are you this evening? I'm a little off I'm my game. Well. I'm well. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. I'm fine, thank you. This pandemic, uh, I mean, we are kissing a year now. We have been living under lockdown. We have been living living closely with our lovers or would-be lovers or former lovers. <laughs> Maybe things aren't going so well because we are locked down under laundry and fighting over who's going to homeschool the kids and who's going to do the laundry and whose job is more important or maybe somebody's lost their job and who's going to go food shopping and what if there are different approaches to mask wearing, God forbid, we have a lot more stressors than we had before this pandemic. How does that affect a person's mental health in general? So, you know, Maureen, uh, the way I look at it is, um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, I just look at it as how um, the pandemic has affected um, the foundations of this hierarchy. And, you know, he talks about, the basic physiological needs, um, which would be air, water, food, et cetera, sleep. And then your safety needs, personal security, employment, health. And then you move on to love and belonging above that. And uh, without any exception, all those areas are affected for mm-hmm. almost um, many people. And uh, it has taken a toll on their mental health as um, there is um, – so much uncertainty, fear about health, you know, what they're going to do about uh, the money situation, and of course, social isolation, which is uh, the most difficult to bear for everybody. So, um, social and, isolation and, yeah. is so brutal, and, and that's that loneliness factor. Yeah. How how about people who may have a mental health diagnosis like bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia? Um, depression, major depression. How does living alone by themselves uh, in a pandemic with very little social interaction, maybe only able to be on the phone, how does that impact such a devastating diagnosis to begin with? Well, uh, actually, a report came uh, from uh, World Health Organization uh, pointing to um, a lot of disruptions in critical mental health services. And Obviously, the, uh, this population that you just talked about uh, are affected the most as they cannot access very critical services um, that is actually for the survival almost. Um, I know that before the pandemic, we already had difficulty with uh, reaching uh, mental health professionals. And after the pandemic, this has become even more difficult. Uh, I know we are doing the best we can with telepsychiatry, telepsychology, uh, but it is still a very uh, big challenge. Um, and also, you know, when, when somebody's suffering from mental health issues, they already have difficulty reaching out. And so with the pandemic um, and some of these services uh, not being up to par always, um, that's become even more challenging for them. If you have a question for my psychiatrist guest, Dr. Koresh Adelati, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-98. It's toll-free across the country. Um, For somebody who perhaps has bipolar disorder and has been stable uh, on medications, uh, would the pandemic, would a person be at increased risk of, you know, we're looking at a year of being in the pandemic, loneliness, springtime, uh, people are, is, is a higher season for people to have manic episodes. Um, is this a time when people with bipolar illness are at greater risk for um, manic episodes? I would say uh, it's the case for uh, many uh, 
mental health issues. Bipolar disorder uh, specifically uh, would be um, also quite prone uh, because of uh, uh, sometimes relapses in uh, you know uh, care um, specifically. You know when maybe they forget or uh, what I've seen quite a bit of is increase in substance use during the pandemic. And this can become a problem for someone with bipolar disorder um, and a relapse uh, into a manic episode uh, because the triggers are easily to come by. And uh, because of the social isolation, it's very difficult to uh, right away get the care that they need. And I know it's so important to support people who have mental health issues, uh, especially for family and friends to reach out. But there's still a stigma associated with mental health concerns uh, for people who experience them, for people who have grown up with them, for people who love people who have mental health illness. Uh, Do you think that the pandemic is going to help destigmatize mental illness? Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, I think uh, what has done is um, because... The, the, the number of people affected by this and seeking help for different mental health issues has increased. And so uh, at least from a visibility point of view, the pandemic has made um, mental health issues more of a forefront issue. And so uh, this can um, bode well for removing some of these stigmas. But I think the, uh, the government has still uh, a lot to do in terms of uh, um, creating programs where people are uh, uh, able to access uh, and find that you know uh, they're not alone, um, and I think um, when you have visibility, it's an it's an opportunity for us to uh, reach out and make sure that those who before the pandemic were feeling stigmatized now have an opportunity to actually reach uh, and access mental health care. And I think a lot of people will have more compassion for those suffering with mental illnesses because they realize just how uh, quickly they can become anxious or depressed. Um, You know, I see patients who are in sexless marriages that has increased tenfold since the pandemic. And it's also led to disconnection, intimacy issues, um, depression, you know, low self-esteem, divorce, or, you know, or thinking about divorce or a lot of people are really hopeless about their sexless marriage. They're trying everything or they feel like they're the one in the couple that's trying everything. And yet it's been a year and a half, two years since the last intimate time or the time that the couple was intimate and and they're just giving up and and children are affected and families are affected especially when we have increased uh divorce rates um so it's just terrible but i know that exercise is important and getting out and socializing you mentioned having programs i would imagine programs where there are other people because we are social animals anything else in particular that you would recommend to somebody suffering or struggling with mental illness at this time I think the first uh, step would be to reach out for help. Um, I think most people uh, think that, oh, uh, my next door neighbor or my uncle has uh, also some difficulty and I shouldn't reach out. You know, just pick up the phone and make a phone call. It doesn't always lead to something, but at least you've reached out to someone or um, even if you can uh, call, uh, you know, your family doctor, any, any organization that would support mental health. Do it first. The second thing, I think, structure um, and, you know, schedule activities. Uh, that would really help um, kind of get out of the routines of social isolation. Um, you know, schedule exercise, relaxation, meditation, going for a, a socially distant uh, walk with a friend. I think that would uh, be also very critical. And of course, the other thing is if you know someone who's struggling, uh, reassure them. You know, this is, uh, I know this looks like a very dark tunnel, but uh, hopefully um, soon with the vaccination process, um, we'll be out of this. Hopefully I can vaccinate a million people a day for the next (laughs) month. (laughs) I would do it if I could. We are talking mental health with psychiatrist extraordinaire Dr. Koresh Edelati is joining me on the line and right now we're going to focus on a mental illness that quite frankly I have never really been able to understand and that is borderline personality disorder. Dr. Edelati can you let me know what exactly is borderline personality disorder? Well borderline personality disorder is uh, 
a mental health disorder, um, and it affects our ability to uh, regulate emotions, uh, ability to regulate behavior, uh, and also because of those um, patterns of uh, relationships that are uh, not very stable, uh, oftentimes manifested in this. Um, people with borderline personality, I mean, you, you might have uh, met someone, uh, you, you thought for some strange reason, you don't feel easy when it comes to um, this push and pull dynamic. So, um, you know, there's, there's a fear of abandonment oftentimes you uh, experience with them because the moment you um, have even the slightest uh, hint for them that you're leaving or you're not going to be, um, you know, in, in a friendship or relationship with them, they start to act very uh, dysregulated. And uh, with a lot of anger, of course, this is the other problem with it, is, is that emotional outburst that uh, most people um, around uh, persons with borderline personality disorder experience. And, and so is it about, I mean, a lot of people have difficulty regulating their emotions. Um, is this something that is pretty severe? Do they have difficulty at work? Do they have difficulty in relationships? Um, do they have difficulty with their parents? Um, I mean, I know I have a friend who said that her, one of her children was borderline personality disorder. That, that child certainly gave them a lot of trouble, but, um, you know, is it so bad? It's, it's very severe. So, I mean, we all have anger, right? Anger is energized anxiety oftentimes. And, uh, what uh, is experienced with, um, borderline personality is extremes of anger. Um, so there is um, almost the rage level anger. And what uh, they usually go through is this uh, emotions of being abandoned. And so oftentimes there's this love-hate relationship that uh, is uh, given to the persons around them. So you know, one moment they love you, then the next moment they're uh, they can't stand you, basically. And then they go into this rageful uh, uh, outburst. And the other thing, of course, is uh, along with those rageful outbursts are uh, impulse control issues, um, mm-hmm. you know, engaging in um, risky activities, uh, substance use is a big right. problem, of course, um, and uh, threat of self-harm. That's another thing. So uh, oftentimes they uh, threaten the, the loved ones with, you know, um, suicide or um, self-injurious behavior, mm-hmm. um, and um, that is uh, also very uh, difficult for people around to experience. My heart's racing. I have Benny on the line from Abbotsford, British Columbia. Good evening, Benny. Yes, good evening. I'd like to ask the doctor what a normal person can do to keep his brain healthy and to prevent it from slipping into depression. I've got lots of ideas, but I would like to hear it from the psychiatrist himself. How to keep your brain functioning and not get depressed. And I just wondered, are there any normal people, Dr. Adelotti? But anyway, I'll let you answer the question. Go ahead. (laughs) How do you keep your brain healthy to stop off depression? (laughs) Um, So the first, uh, the first step, of course, is um, to make sure that if if there is um, threat of depression, so starting to feel isolated, starting to feel low, um, cognitive fog and um, difficulty with interest, you know, withdrawing, any of these symptoms starts to show up uh, seeking professional help. That's the first thing, um, uh, so that you don't carry yourself through this journey alone. Um, and then, of course, uh, it comes down to uh, what we do um, in terms of activities, right? Uh, one uh, principle we use oftentimes is called um, activation or behavioral activation. And we uh, tell patients to um, be active, get out there, uh, interact with people, um, whether it's in groups, whether it's, uh, you know, with the COVID, is a little bit challenging right now, of course. But even if you do it on Zoom, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, be able to uh, get engaged with others um, and uh, nutrition critical uh, oftentimes um, you know when we have depression we start to uh, abandon uh, 
good ways of eating uh, because we know cortisol levels go up. And of course, we start seeking foods that are not really helpful for our brain. So paying attention to what we're eating and uh, making sure that's done. Uh, physical activity, there's lots of research showing uh, in, that it increases um, uh, brain uh, chemicals associated with better mood. So uh, having that oxygen, having that physical activity, that muscular movement, um, and also it gets us out of the house, especially during the pandemic, uh, can help with uh, alleviating some of those symptoms of depression. How about, I see a lot of people on Facebook, they will self-disclose their anxiety or their depression. And, you know, they'll often be posting a photo with them with a glass of wine or beer um, or some other cocktail. Uh, How about alcohol and the impact on anxiety and depression? Well, alcohol is a depressant by just its chemical composition. So um, a lot of times um, when a person struggles with depression or anxiety, they try to subdue that um, feeling um, with alcohol. And unfortunately, uh, that makes the situation worse uh, because uh, after the effects of the alcohol have subsided, um, we actually feel more depressed or anxious than before. Uh, so uh to, you know, whenever that is the case, uh, it's, a, it's a warning sign that uh, the person should seek uh, support, um, mental health support from a professional and try to deal with uh, the actual root cause of uh, the depression or the anxiety. And I want to ask you for all of these things, you utilize treatments such as not just uh, medications in your practice, but you utilize neurofeedback and transcranial magnetic stimulation and functional medicine and neuromodulation and psychotherapy. How do these treatments uh, offer help for patients? Well, each of them have um, one aspect of uh, treatment address. Um, so, for example, medications would increase the levels of chemicals in the brain uh, that are missing or that are low. Um, and uh, things such as uh, TMS uh, would uh, enhance some of those effects. Uh, or when it comes to functional medicine, we'll be looking at root causes of uh, disease. Um, so if, if it's depression, we look at, well, where did it start? Uh, was there a childhood issue? Was there uh, something other than genetics that contributed to this. And so by trying to get rid of, getting rid of the root causes of uh, the depression, we try to address it. And that's, of course, through nutrition and lifestyle changes, uh, such as increasing physical activity. Um, So all of them, um, they basically display a more integrated approach to mental health, uh, and uh, hopefully we can make some impact there. And, and for more information, people can go to your website, lumind.com. That's E-L-U-M-I-N-D.com. Dr. Edelotti, thank you so much for joining me on the program this evening and for all of the great information. My pleasure, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Take care. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. This is the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. We're going to be talking about a uh, all-too-common medical condition that affects more women than men. Also going to be talking about sex after the kids. Does it actually occur? (laughs) Some of my patients actually ask me if it will ever happen again. And a bit of a of an homage to International Women's Day. And of course, ladies, the big O with that. Uh, Tomorrow is International Women's Day. It's a day that we celebrate the accomplishments of women um, from a business perspective to a political perspective, social and more. But right now, I want to talk to you about a chronic autoimmune disease of the central nervous system. It is multiple sclerosis or MS. Since MS includes the brain, spinal cord, and optic nerve, MS can affect one's vision, memory, balance, and mobility. It's considered an episodic disability, which means that the severity and duration of illness and disability can vary and are often followed by periods of wellness. It can be progressive. And as I mentioned, more women have MS than men. 
And this distribution is uneven around the world. And Canada has one of the highest rates of multiple sclerosis in the world with an estimated 90,000 Canadians living with with this disease. And 12 Canadians are diagnosed with MS every single day. Joining me on the line to talk about this in a new non-surgical treatment is Dr. John Klein. He's the medical director at the Klein Medical Center in uh, British Columbia. And also joining me on the line is a former, which I believe is good news, former patient at the Klein Medical Center, Molly Ann Baker. Good evening to both of you. Good evening. Nice to have both of you joining me on the line. Um, so this is, um, multiple sclerosis is a very uh, difficult diagnosis uh, to receive. Tell me about, now I know the clinic that you work in, Dr. Klein, uh, deals with a lot of patients who have issues with traumatic brain injury and gait and balance. Um, so tell me a little bit about what life is like for people with MS. Well, as you were saying uh, earlier, Maureen, the, uh, it can be progressive or it can occur intermittently. And uh, it is true that it seems to affect mostly women. And there are a lot of Canadians that have have this. Uh, Why do you think it affects mostly women? Is it hormonal? Is it life stress? I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question. But, uh, you know, I've been in the the, the healthcare professions for almost 40 years, and most of the people with MS have been women. Um, and as you were saying, <clears throat> excuse me, the the degree of disability can vary to, you know, difficulty with uh, balance or vision, or, you know, it can progress to uh, people being bedridden or wheelchair-ridden. So, it uh, it has a tremendous impact on a person's uh, health and well-being. I'm not sure if you were listening, but we were talking about mental health in a pandemic, and I imagine that somebody who has been diagnosed with MS and then is living through a pandemic, life must be just that much harder. Uh, Molly Ann, uh, you or have been diagnosed with MS, and yeah. uh, you were a former patient at uh, this clinic. But what is life like for you um, as a woman with multiple sclerosis, and how long have you had it? Well, I'm 79 years of age now, and I was diagnosed when I was 34. And at that time, I was fortunate to go on to a megavitamin therapy, which was three injections a day, and a huge dose of oral vitamins, and it helped tremendously. So I'm always want to go towards the natural therapy. And five years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I was told honestly that the chemo would acerbate the MS. But beggars can't be choosers. So the toss of the coin, I took on the chemo and radiation. But the MS accelerated. And then very, very fortunately, a friend told me about the PONS treatment that I had no knowledge of at all. And I met Dr. Klein and Marcella at the Klein Medical Center in Nanaimo. And upon meeting them, I had absolutely no doubt about starting the PONS treatment. So just if, you, if we can just step it back for a sec, you said that mm-hmm. um, your chemo and radiation from your breast cancer uh, accelerated your MS. MS. Mm-hmm. In what way? Can you describe for the listeners how it worsened? Uh, up until then, I was really almost MS-free. And then with... And, and what does I, MS I free? What my, does MS free but, mean for you? What did MS free mean? Uh, it meant that I was normal, uh, like a normal person, the way I was, say, thirty-five years ago. I had very little symptoms of dizziness or lack of balance, tripping, uh, all of that. Um, and then when I met Doctor. 
Klein and Marcella, I was at the point of uh, feeling mm, very, very much under control. The MS has accelerated. I was falling constantly. I ran out of count of how many times I had fallen. I felt vulnerable. I was dizzy, lack of energy. And then when I met Dr. Klein and Marcella with the Pons treatment, I knew from that moment on that's what I had to do. Now, and I didn't look back. All right. Now I only look forward. That's outstanding. Now, um, we'll get to the Pons treatment in a minute. Um, but mm-hmm. Dr. Klein, what are some of the treatments for MS that are available today besides the Pons treatment? Because I want to get to that. But what, what historically have been the treatments for patients? Well, historically, um, you know, there have been uh, changes in diet. Um, and what kind of, of changes in diet? Well, um, you know, the, the, the getting back to the basics, uh, avoiding sugars, uh, increasing the amount of the, the great oils or fats in our diet, and um, uh, <clears throat> limiting protein from animal source and uh, taking a a large variety of vegetables, uh, different colors and fruits. But, um, you know, over the years, there have been uh, various medications given. Uh, For instance, uh, prednisone, which is a powerful anti-inflammatory medication that can quickly decrease inflammation uh, throughout the body, including the nervous system, during a flare of MS. Um, but there are, there are newer uh, drugs that are available to try and halt the progressive inflammation and damage to the nerves uh, that uh, affect people with MS. I, I just want to say that prednisone is a brutal drug with horrific side effects for people. That's that's correct. It's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a sledgehammer for inflammation, but it has a long list of well-known adverse effects that will occur the longer you're on that drug. That's right, and and so many people um, suffer uh, when they uh, take this particular corticosteroid. Um, yeah. It can it can really have serious um, negative side effects, and people don't feel well. I mean, they feel better, obviously, um, because the inflammation has been decreased. But then they can have other um, symptoms as well. That uh, so, what are some of the other medications that? Um, well, there there are newer um, medications that uh, will uh, alter the immune system response um, to dampen it down uh, so that it's not so reactive uh, towards the nerves. You know, the in in many disorders, including the uh, current coronavirus. Um, it's not so much the virus that causes the the uh, significant injury and death. It's the overactive immune or defense system response to the virus. Uh, it's like uh, lighting a, a house on fire to get rid of a mouse or rat. Uh-huh. Um, so, do, they, do those new medications have some of the side effects like prednisone, like the mood changes and the weight gain, the increased appetite, sleep issues, headaches, dizziness? Not so much. Uh-huh. Um, not so much as the prednisone, but they they can. Uh, they any drug can have potential adverse effects, and uh-huh. each person is unique in, in how they react to uh, medication. We're talking about multiple sclerosis, a condition that is common, uh, commonly affects more women than it does men. Dr. John Klein is the medical director at Klein Medical Center in Victoria, British Columbia, joins me on the line, as does patient Molly Baker, or should I say former Pons patient, um, Molly Ann Baker. Thanks, both of you, for staying on the line. Our 
pleasure. Hello. Hello. Here. Hello again. Thanks for staying here. Um, so one of the biggest issues for people who have um, multiple sclerosis or MS is difficulty with gait. So difficulty essentially walking. Um, and so there is a new treatment uh, out that's a non-surgical or conservative measure. I love conservative measures, quite frankly. Uh, and it is PONS treatment. Dr. Klein, can you tell me exactly what the PONS treatment is? Yes, the PONS uh, is a Health Canada approved uh, treatment um, and it stands for uh, Portable Neuromodulation Stimulator and basically it's a device that sits on the tongue and it delivers about one million impulses of uh, electrical microcurrent energy a minute uh, through the vast network of nerves in the tongue directly into the base of the brain where it then spreads through neural networks in the brain and it stimulates the process called neuroplasticity which means simply that uh, nerves that have been injured uh, they reform the thousands of connection to nerves around them uh, and uh, so that the brain then regains function and uh, so this will compensate for previously lost function so the the pons treatment is a 14 week program uh, combining in clinic and mostly in home use of this device uh, that's guided by a certified PONS trainer. And um, it's important to realize that it's not just putting the device on the tongue, uh, you know, for three hours a day, but that it has to be used in conjunction with physical therapy supervised by a physical therapist. Right. Is this a device that people purchase and, and bring home? Yes. Okay. So it's a small device. It's a very small device. It's about the size of the tongue. Okay. And is it expensive, may I ask? <laughs> it is expensive uh, as none of our uh, provincial health care plans cover yet because it's, it's only been in use, clinical use in the world uh, for about two years now. And Canada is the first country uh, to approve clinical use. Uh, so uh, there are insurance companies that are uh, stepping up to the plate and uh, covering the cost uh, for use uh, of indication for post-traumatic brain injury or uh, MS. And thank goodness. And in a couple of clinical trials in relation to multiple sclerosis anyway, um, it was shown using the PONS device in combination with physical therapy over 14 weeks led to significant improvement in gait as compared to physical therapy alone. Um, Mayor, uh, Molly Ann, the, how you used the PONS treatment? Yes, I have for and 14 weeks. For 14 weeks. And how did you find, uh, how easy was it to use and how effective was it for you? Before I started the PONS treatment, I was vulnerable. I was, um, my gait was terrible. The falls you just lose count of. And once I started the PONS treatment, I could look to the future instead of looking to the past. Looking towards the future, I had hope. I had confidence. And my gait and my walking abilities tremendously improved. Dr. Klein took a videotape of me on my first day when my husband and I went up. And then he took another tape about halfway through the program and then at the end. And when I saw that videotape of myself the first day, I was totally horrified. I couldn't believe that was me going through the test that Marcella put me through. I couldn't believe it. And I was really trying very hard. At the end of that 14 weeks, I was almost running. I had confidence. I was focused. And I haven't looked back. 
That's amazing. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Yeah, that's wonderful news. And I, I certainly hope that um, the governments will start to cover this. Um, I do, too. Because yes. there's so many out there that need the help, and they need to know about it. Absolutely. Dr. John Klein, Medical Director at Klein Medical Center. How can people get in touch or learn more about the PONS treatment? Well, there's um, probably about 20 clinics now across Canada. Ours was number seven, and we're, we're in Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. Um, so there is a website for all of the clinics, uh, and it's uh, Pons P-O-N-S, as in Sam, treatment.ca. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate your time on the programming contribution. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here with the final strokes of the program. If you have any questions about your relationship, feel free to give me a call. The number to call is one 877 You can text me there as well. It's a toll-free call across the country. You could also email me nursetalk at hotmail.com. I have a text message here. Uh, Dear Maureen, I would like to remain anonymous for safety reasons. I'd like to take a moment to thank you and Dr. Edelotti for talking about borderline personality disorder. I was lucky enough to get away from a spouse with this disorder. I am feeling validated and relieved. Thank you again. It would be very difficult after what Dr. Edelotti, I don't know if you were listening at that point, earlier on in the program, we were talking about mental health issues and in particular, a focus on borderline personality disorder, something I've always had a very hard time understanding. Um, However, uh, it sounded really horrific. And if you're in a relationship with somebody who has labile emotions, who has anger issues, who is impulsive, who has poor decision-making skills, who perhaps blames you has a push-pull approach to the relationship, uh, it can be extremely difficult and obviously negatively impact your own mental health as well. Sometimes these uh, symptoms of these mental health diagnoses can be contagious as well. So if they have anxiety, you can be extremely anxious or even get depressed living with somebody who uh, treats you poorly. And it sounds like people with borderline personality disorder definitely treat those that they care about and love very poorly. Um, But I want to talk about another subject right now that is probably the most common thing that I hear in my clinical practice, which is virtual these days. Of course, it's uh, if if you'd like, if you're interested in a virtual appointment about anything related to below the belt issues, uh, the website is getcleopatra.com. But probably the most common thing, and especially since the pandemic, that I have uh, dealt with patients about, spoken with patients, helped them, educated them, is uh, low sexual desire, and especially after the kids come along. And then living in lockdown, it just creates this alphabet soup of <laughs> nothingness uh, and, and a lot of frustration as well. And I've seen people uh, get depressed in those situations when there has been no uh, sex for months and months. I mean, I, I have patients that have been in sexless relationships. And you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if some of their spouses were, uh, did uh, have diagnosable mental health conditions um, such as bipolar or such as borderline personality disorder. Um, and, And sometimes when you're in a relationship with somebody like that, you don't actually realize, you know, you, you, they keep holding out the carrot for you. Um, you know, they keep dangling that carrot and that carrot never actually, um, you know, amounts to anything. And, uh, and so one of the more common times when there's low sexual desire is after the children are born. And you know what, there's, there's reasons for that. And then there are reasons, um, that are kind of made up perhaps, or, um, sometimes that's all a woman wants is to have a baby and to make the, uh, childhood of that baby more perfect than her own. And, or, or when, uh, somebody loves their children so much, they forget their partner, they forget their 
their spouse, um, especially in the bedroom. Or when we don't hear this commonly as well, that after the children are born, um, sometimes the woman, and it's same goes for the man, I'm not saying that, but we're just talking about um, people who deliver babies at the moment. Um, and so sometimes these people don't look after themselves. They focus so much on the baby and the children that they let themselves go. They gain weight. Um, they sit around. They eat an unhealthy diet. Um, they have poor body image issues. They might have sleep issues. I mean, I have a couple who the baby and the mother are sleeping together in the same bed and, and they've been doing so for 17 months. You know what that means, that he sleeps with the cats. Um, and so it's, you know, he's come to the realization in this particular situation that, um, you know, maybe this isn't the kind of life that he wants for the next 30 to 40 years because nothing has been changed. Nothing has changed in the relationship after months of marital counseling and therapy. And um, I mean, he has done a lot of work uh, to help himself, but his, he finds that his partner is not doing anything to help herself. And and, um, but yet keep, she keeps leading him on. And so that can, can be an issue in a lot of relationship as well. But there are some postpartum myths that I wanted to address, um, that can lead to low sexual desire, uh, for people who deliver babies. Um, so after you have a baby, you know, this is the myth that after you have a baby, it's normal to, well, leak urine or pee when you cough, sneeze, jump, laugh, or run. It's never normal to leak urine. A lot of women refer to this as peeing. They'll say, I pee my pants, or I laugh so hard I peed my pants. And, and sometimes you might. Um, you get a mid-urethral weakness after a vaginal delivery, um, and you know sometimes that will uh, last longer um, than you would like, and other times it will resolve itself within you know 6 to 12 weeks or so. There are a number of treatment options you do not have to live with leakage of urine. Um, it's It can be just isolating and depressing. You can feel older. It can lead to weight gain because you don't exercise as much. But there's everything from a pessary, which is a small medical grade silicon device that's inserted into the vagina to support the mid-urethra uh, and prevent leakage of urine. There's also transobturator tape, which is a surgical procedure that takes about 20 minutes um, that does have a recovery period of about two to six weeks. Um, also, there is the Kegel Throne, which is an electromagnotherapeutic device that a woman sits on uh, six times over about two to three weeks, um, where we have fabulous um, results with that device as well. Um, sometimes uh, it can be hormonally related. And so some women may need low-dose localized estrogen therapy. That can help a lot of women as well. Kegels are, you know, in my opinion, Kegels are overrated. And I have so many patients who come to see me and they'll say, you know, I've been doing Kegels for a year, year and a half, and there's no change whatsoever in my stressed urinary incontinence. Now, for overactive bladder, which is frequency, urgency, and nocturia, and absolutely no fun, uh, fast Kegels can work. But if you haven't had help from Kegel exercises. If your doctor has sent you off to a pelvic floor physiotherapist for Kegels and you're going more than three times, the Kegels are not going to work and it's time to move on to another type of treatment. But just remember, there are many other treatments available to you. Um, something else that, uh, that you know, doctors and midwives often say to women after they've had a baby is that um, you can have sex at six weeks. Now, the woman or the person who's had the baby might actually you know, tell a little fib to their partners. Oh, the doctor said I can't have sex for 10 weeks. Um, because low sexual desire, because of the fatigue, the breastfeeding, the potential mastitis, the, which goes along, which has symptoms like diarrhea and fever and overall malaise. Um, you know, getting up at night, some women need their sleep more desperately than others. All of this can lead to low sexual desire and understandably so. But as your baby grows, as the feeding gets established, as you start sleeping through the night and your baby has longer sleeping periods, the fatigue should resolve. If it doesn't, it is time to speak to your um, healthcare provider about if, if this is related to another medical condition like postpartum depression, for example. Um, many uh, women believe that if you have a C-section, your vagina and pelvic floor are unaffected, so you won't leak urine, but that's not necessarily true. Many women have a C-section after having labored for many hours, so um, and they still are... Um, 
you know, they, women who have C-sections planned, perhaps, leaking urine is less common and you are at less risk for vaginal laxity. Vaginal laxity is something else that um, may affect women because the, you know, you, your vagina is elastic and it stretches to accommodate a baby's head. Um, but some women believe that, um, that, that your um, vagina is too stretched out after a baby to have an orgasm. No, uh, but, but there is a condition called vaginal laxity. Uh, most women require clitoral stimulation to experience orgasm. We're going to be talking about that in the next segment. Uh, but about 20% of women experience vaginal laxity, which can lead to low sexual sensation, and that can actually lead to low sexual desire problems in the bedroom as well. Um, but there are always options and treatments for that also. That's a tissue issue, whereas the leakage of urine is a muscle issue. There's radiofrequency treatments. They are expensive, but they are effective um, because everybody deserves an enjoyable and pleasurable sex life. And your sexual pleasure is achievable even after um, having experiencing vaginal laxity. And it's a result of genetics and tissue and the age of w- which um, you have a baby. Um, there's another myth out there that sex will always hurt or be uncomfortable after having a baby. And this is not true for all women. But for some, changes in hormones and breastfeeding may lead to vaginal dryness. And that can lead to painful sex and ultimately low sexual desire. So there's personal moisturizers, which are hormone-free. There's also low-dose localized estrogen therapy. Nonetheless, for whatever problem you have after you've had the baby, remember your relationship is critical as well. And it's also critical to the health of your children and your family. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.